0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbas of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review.
1: Three Martini's coming up. Glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have three topics today, but all of them are connected, of course, to the horrific, just despicable elementary school shooting in Texas, about 60 miles away uh, from the southern border. Uh, we started to see this news trickle in yesterday afternoon, Jim. Uh, a lot of confusion at first. Was the shooting actually at the school? Had there been a shooting and the shooter just went to hide out at the school? And then soon enough, we found out that at least a couple of students had been killed. And Governor Abbott announced it was up to 14. As of right now, I believe it's 19 students killed and at least two teachers, Uh, the gunman also dead. And from what we're seeing in these threads, these heartbreaking threads of the students, it looks like it was a fourth grade class or classes uh, that were attacked here. Every student I've seen uh, was nine or 10 years old and a fourth grader. So it appears that that's the class that this gunman encountered. And so of course, Jim, your heart breaks. Uh, I thought the very early part of Biden's speech last night, as he talked about losing a child, was good. And then he immediately, of course, pivoted to this is the gun lobby's fault. And I'm not sure how he makes that leap, but obviously a lot of people are as well. Uh, and so what laws would have made a difference here? What uh, what other things would have made a difference? Um, as you point out in the morning, Jolt, there wasn't a lot on this shooter's formal record that uh, would have stopped him from getting guns. He bought them, uh, it appears, in a legal manner, so nothing uh, flagged on the background check. Uh, The New York Post, uh, which I think is quoting the Washington Post mainly, uh, quotes some of his friends that that, that said this kid had gone downhill quite a bit. He'd been cutting his face with knives. uh, Not that long ago, he'd been shooting out of car windows with BB guns. So warning signs that may or may not have actually been acted on. But uh, here we are again, Jim, and a lot of finger pointing uh, that probably won't get us very far.
0: Greg, I figure it's only a matter of time uh, before we hear someone pointing to this shooting and saying it's another reason why we need to close the gun show loophole, even though the shooter did not purchase his firearm at a gun show. And my attitude is if you look at some horrific tragedy like this and you say you want to do something about it, well, then the solution you propose should be applicable to the particular tragedy you're trying to solve or other tragedies. And I, you don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but an exceptionally few uh, uh, mass shooters have ever purchased their firearms at a, uh, at, at a gun show. I, I also, by the way, you often hear a lot of scapegoating and blaming of the NRA. Off the top of my head, I don't believe any mass shooter has been a licensed member of the NRA. I, mean, I don't think I've ever been a former member or anything like that. So basically, you know, law-abiding gun owners are the kind of folks who joined the NRA They are not the ones who go out and commit these sorts of mass shootings. Um, You'll hear a lot about the assault weapons ban uh, and the idea of, well, if we didn't have this assault weapons ban, this wouldn't have happened. That's not really the case, or at minimum, you look back at uh, the mass shootings and the Department of Justice and the Violence Project, a nonprofit research center, a couple months ago issued this giant study. They said the most comprehensive study of mass shootings in the U.S. from 1966 to 2019, And they kind of run all the the statistics on this. And unsurprisingly, uh, only the vast majority of them used handguns. So the assault weapons ban, which wouldn't cover most handguns, uh, 77.2%, right? So 25% of mass shootings used a rifle that may have been characterized as an assault rifle and maybe would have been uh, barred or much harder to obtain under the assault weapons ban. Okay, so you could do that. I would point out, though, this idea of, oh, well, if we just get rid of assault weapons, we won't have this. Um, One of the factors that I I keep coming back to when we get to these discussions is the Virginia Tech shooting. You know, absolutely unforgettable, horrifying. The shooter in that situation only had two guns. One had a capacity of 10 rounds. The other had a capacity of 15 rounds. In that attack, killed 32 people, wounded 17 others. So a mass shooter can still do a lot of damage with with a handgun or more than one handgun. Um, the idea of taking a certain kind of rifle and saying we're not going to make this available to be sold uh, anymore, maybe that makes a difference on the margins, but I think that's disputable. Also keep in mind, when it comes to school shooters, very, very few of them purchase their guns legally. This is probably one of those rare cases in which that is the case. You're like, aha, it's illegal gun sales. Well, actually, no. According to this study, more than 80% of the individuals who are involved in shootings in schools involving uh, elementary schools, middle schools, and, and high schools stole guns from family members. So we can talk about whether if you have gun- children in the house, if you have teenagers in the house, you know, should you keep them locked up? Should you make them harder to access? Um, one of the details in this case that is jumping out at me and strikes me as unusual, uh, I'm hoping subsequent investigation will clarify this a bit more. The uh, shooter had two rifles. Only brought one to the school, but he had per- had two in his car, left one in the car, uh, and then somebody had purchased two. He turned 18 earlier this month. So he was legally able to. And one of the points I'll get to a bit in a second about background checks is that nothing, he had no criminal record, no restraining orders, no uh, emergency uh, safety orders on him or anything like that. You know, that is the sort of thing that prevents someone from purchasing a firearm. None of that happened in this case. There's, you know, some interest, some stories of his peers saying that he was, you know, shooting the BB gun and troubled and all that kind of stuff. But no point had said this person is a threat to themselves. This person is a threat to others. This person should not be allowed to purchase a firearm. The detail I said that I alluded to earlier that was curious is he purchased two rifles from Daniel Defense. They are both variations of the AR-15. By the way, there are a bunch of different rifles that are uh, fall under the AR-15 label. Um, I looked at Daniel Defense's website this morning. The cost of those rifles runs anywhere from $1,870 to $3,390. Now, let's assume we got the cheap ones. That's still about $3,600 just for the rifles themselves. He purchased 375 rounds of ammunition. Uh, That one probably set him back another $230 to $460. And he reportedly was wearing a plate carrier, which is not a bulletproof vest, but it's the kind of vest designed to carry that bulletproof body armor. He did not have any armor inside it, but that'll cost you another, you know, there's a big range on the quality of these, but anywhere from $75 to $500. So here we have this troubled 18-year-old young man who had the funds to purchase several thousand dollars worth of firearms and ammunition before he started his rampage. Um, Once again, should this have raised a red flag with the the, the vendor? Well, he didn't have any criminal record. He didn't have any mental health record. There was nothing in there. And we can't keep going back. I mean, there was a point maybe a decade or so ago where people who thought someone was acting strange or acting in a way that represented they could be a, a threat or something, they were going to their company's HR department. They were going to, there was a university student, they were going to the university companies and universities and schools do not have the power to take away somebody's gun. The only institution that can do that is law enforcement and it's got to generally has to be adjudicated before a judge. So generally, you know, you and I have lamented this going back ages about the if you see something say something. In far too many cases somebody says something and then law enforcement doesn't do anything about it. In this case it sounds like Greg a lot of people saw behavior that they saw as troubling but maybe not necessarily an indicator of an imminent threat. Uh, there were some posts on Instagram and, and I guess another social media platform that were uh, very disturbing and, and kind of you know strongly hinted that he was up to something bad. Um, but you kind of look at all of this stuff. Unfortunately, there's not a simple legal change where you say, aha, if we do this, the, the federally licensed firearms dealer will not sell him the gun. I, I noticed this, this uh, phenomenon of... Um, We used to think about workplace shootings. The one thing that had changed in this detailed, uh, comprehensive DOJ study was that the rate of uh, mass shootings that were connected to workplaces had declined significantly over the course of the study. And you're thinking about that. You don't hear as much about uh, a disgruntled ex-employee coming back and shooting as what you used to. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It does happen here and there. But back in the, I'm going to say the 90s and early 2000s, you know, the, the kind of crass phrase, going postal, right? This idea, we thought of mass shooters as generally being uh, angry, recently laid off employees. And now, I think particularly post-Columbine, it really feels like we see mass shootings and hear about mass shootings and are most terrified by mass shootings in schools. I do kind of wonder if that's a sign that the background check system is working It's keeping guns out of the hands of adults who have criminal records, who have restraining orders, who have some reason in the legal system that they should not be able to purchase a firearm. But however, in a case like this, where the person who wants to do mayhem just turned 18, they haven't been around long enough to accumulate that paper record. They haven't been around that point to trigger the red flag. So I don't know if there's a real simple answer to this one, Greg. And my suspicion is there are a whole bunch of people who'd like to argue uh, you know, assault weapons ban and uh, gun show loophole, and, and, all, and you know all this kind of better background checks. Without it, really saying, all right, so what do you want to put in that better background check, and how do you want to make this system work? Um, we are another one of those moments where people want to do something and don't really want to think too hard about the details. Yeah, it's it's
1: kind of why this uh, debate is where it is. Uh, there are obviously those Biden, Chris Murphy is probably the most prominent member of the Senate who who thinks that uh, banning certain guns is the way to go. He, he did it again uh, yesterday. Um, you know, the so-called assault weapons ban was essentially in place from about 1994 to 2004. I think that's, that's roughly right. When did the huge spate of school shootings begin? It was during that decade with Paducah and Jonesboro and Columbine and and so many other schools. Um, the frequency may be higher now, but it's not like the assault weapons ban solved that problem. In fact, it happened after the ban uh, was in effect. And so you're going to hear a lot of people say, well, the, uh, if, if the background check system doesn't work, then we just have to remove access to the firearms. And, and that is not going to to work either, especially at a time, Jim, when crime is on the rise, particularly in our urban areas. And so, uh, people need to be able to defend themselves. And of course, the vast majority of gun owners, like you said, are law abiding citizens who just want to protect their families. And so, uh, punishing them, uh, for the, uh, heinous absolutely heinous actions of a few uh is not the solution here because uh the crazy and the evil will always find a way to get weapons while the good people can't defend themselves
0: Uh, there's no easy transition to a sponsor is there greg uh there is not
1: there is not but we are grateful for a new sponsor in fact you'll be hearing about them a couple of times today but the three martini lunch today is brought to you by NetChoice. Uh, As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world. We have the most innovative companies that power our economy and way of life. And free market innovation is what makes us number one. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors
0: like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. This message is brought to you by NetChoice.
1: Learn more about them at netchoice.org 2992. So, Jim, we talked in the first segment about the kind of knee-jerk responses and and why those proposed ideas won't work. So now we get to the hard question. What will work? Why is this happening? Why is this happening with the frequency that it is? Because we did just see a a very disturbed young man shoot up uh, a grocery store in Buffalo. Uh, We're seeing this. And uh, it was just last month where we talked about this in some depth because that survey came out where a disturbingly high number of teenagers had either contemplated suicide or thought of their lives as hopeless and that sort of thing. So how do they get in this state of mind and how do we get them out of it? And we talked about a lot of things from social interaction to obviously the secularization of America and having that higher purpose and seeing your value in the eyes of God uh, and just the different parts of life, some of which was stifled by the the lockdowns and the pandemic and so forth that need to that need to be revitalized. You know, having friendships, actual in-person friendships and not staring at a screen all day. There's so many different layers to this. So where do you begin? Ugh,
0: you know, as a father of a teenage son and a soon-to-be teenage son, this is, you know, front and center in my mind. Um, so far, so good with the Garrity boys. But I think I see some of the challenges that work here. Uh, certainly the lockdowns did not help things. Uh, in our neck of the woods, the schools were closed for about a year. And then when they came back, came back two days a week for a while, then they went back to four days a week. Um, and I think one of the, you know, I think Kevin Williamson had made the observation a couple of days. When you see about these shooters, you see about these angry young men, obviously they don't have big peer groups and, and lots of friends. And very often they have, trouble in the home. Very, very often they do not have a father figure around. Um, And I think all of that helps create a stew of isolation and anger and resentment and this sense that they are missing out on something in life. And in some cases they may very well be, but they also, is the other thing is that the sense of powerlessness, the sense of insignificance, the idea that, you know, obviously when you do this, you know, there's a good chance you're going to die. We've seen a couple of cases in which uh, mass shooters have killed themselves or in other cases, this appears to be kind of an elaborate suicide by cop effort. People who uh, can't bring themselves to shoot themselves, but who want someone else to do the shooting for them. And this kind of this question, like, so how do you reach that point where you feel so insignificant? We are in something of a catch 22 uh, for those of us who cover the news and talk about things like this. Because by the way, you'll notice um, both in the morning jolt and rarely if ever on this podcast do we mention the name of the shooters. Our goal is, you know, I don't want to glamorize these people. I don't want to um, make, turn them into anti-heroes or cult heroes or romanticize what they do or something like that. Um, we have a, a there's, there's no justification for what they do. And yet on the other hand, every teenager wants to feel significant. Every teenager wants to feel like who they are and what they do matters. And so you begin with someone who doesn't feel like, and maybe it's problems in the home back there. Maybe it's problems of, there's reports of this shooter was bullying. I mean, if every every person who was bullied turned into a mass shooter, we'd all be dead by now. I I don't know if you guys think, the interesting thing, Greg, you think about people who talk back to their high school years. There are very few people who would describe them as Nirvana. Uh, maybe they listen to Nirvana, but like, you know, oh, it was just the best, you know, hormonal surges and my face is breaking out and I can't get the uh, a girl or a guy to like me. Uh, all these pressure of classes and homework. And, you know, I didn't make the basketball team and somebody else got the lead in the play and got the solo in band. You know, all, all this stuff. No, like teenage years under the best of circumstances can be very emotionally challenging and draining and a sense of stress and pressure. Um, uh, So there was an interesting discussion amongst my colleagues about how you notice you don't see, generally speaking, um, mass shootings going on in some of the, you know, the the quote unquote bad neighborhoods. You know, there's a lot of gun violence in Chicago, but generally it is, you know, gangs shooting at other gangs. It is not somebody in a poor inner city neighborhood going to a school and shooting it up. Interestingly, it more often tends to happen in suburbia, which makes me nervous here from Authentic City Woods. Uh, It generally makes people who are actually, you know, sometimes very uh, uh, economically challenged, but sometimes it's quite comfortable. Sometimes it's the the comfortable suburbs where you see someone knuckling under and cracking under the pressure of that. The other note I would point out is that there was a report about how the nation's therapists were basically filled to capacity in the months after the pandemic. Maybe this was a story in the New York Times a couple of months ago. Maybe it's gotten a little better by then, but I'm not, I wouldn't expect it to have made a dramatic turnaround. Um, everything, everybody went through something really challenging during the pandemic. And if you got through it fine and you say it wasn't bad for you, great. But lots of people really felt the emotional and psychological pressure of being separated from their loved ones or not being able to go to school, not being able to go to see their coworkers, not being able to have parties and go on vacations and, uh, you know, celebrate holidays the way they used to. All of the good things in life seem to come to a screeching halt and you can't fill that hole in your life with Netflix. You can't fill that hole in your life with takeout food. You need, we're human beings who are social animals. We're used to gathering in tribes. Even going back to when we were nomadic groups, we needed to be part of a group. And that, you know, that ability to be together with all those people is what helped ensure our survival. Being off on your own was, you know, was much riskier. So I I almost kind of wonder, you know, every single one of these, you know, mass shooters is a very similar description. Ah, he was a loner, kept to himself, didn't have a lot of friends and stuff. And if we could just get everybody out there who is feeling alone, everybody out there who is feeling like no one cares about them, who feels like they don't matter, and get a message to them that they do matter, maybe that would make a difference. Now, some of these folks, maybe it's a brain chemistry thing, and maybe they need something sort of pharmacological solution. They really need something like that. But boy, oh boy, if everybody had something where they felt like they were part of a group, and they felt valued, and they felt loved, and they felt cared about, and they felt like they cared about others, and they loved others too, we wouldn't have these sorts of things. How to turn that into policy, Greg? I have no idea, unfortunately. Yeah, that's because I don't think there is a government
1: solution to this. It's a family solution. It's a friend solution. Uh, It's exactly that, making them feel valued. Um, I believe that that faith is, is a critical component of that, because if you only find your... Your worth and your achievements in school or anywhere else, then then eventually you're going to be disappointed, and in some cases, crushingly uh, disappointed. Uh, I also feel, and this is not to blame. The person to blame is is the shooter, of course. Uh, that uh, we're constantly in a in a cycle of this is a crisis, and this is probably going to kill you. Whether it's <laughs> climate change or whether it's social media or whatever it is, uh, we're, we go from one crisis to the to the next. Sometimes several in the same week, and. I think that weighs on people on top of all the other adolescent challenges that, that you mentioned so well just a moment ago. So yeah, I, I think there is a very complicated approach needed here. And unfortunately, everybody seems to have a one-size-fits-all approach here, which is not going to get the job done, certainly from um, a federal government perspective. All right. As we mentioned, uh, we're going to hear from our sponsor a couple of times today. Uh, just remember you know, that uh, some in, in the government uh, want to tinker with your internet. Remember the whole net neutrality fight? And uh, that was supposed to be dire straits for the American people as well. Well, uh, that did not happen, but some still want to go down that road. And as we just said a moment ago, some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our name in the name of competition while our true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. But net choice needs to make us aware of what the Democrats are trying to do in Washington.
0: NetChoice believes that congressional conservatives must stand up for American innovation, not big government, and that they must reject progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. This message is brought to you by NetChoice, and to learn more about them, go to netchoice.org
1: slash 2992. All right, Jim, on to our third and final martini now, and... As the calendar would have it, uh, we are recording a little bit earlier than usual today because you are hopping on a plane a little bit later today to head to Texas for the National Rifle Association Convention. And last night on my drive home, I was talking to uh, someone whose opinion on virtually everything I respect greatly. And I'm thinking, I wonder if Jim's actually going to go. I wonder what the NRA is going to decide here. And his immediate reaction was, Well, no, they have to keep doing this because not doing it would feed into the narrative of the left that they're somehow culpable here, which they are clearly not. In fact, the NRA's priorities, one of them anyway, one of their big ones, is to train school security. So they are part of the solution here, not the villain. And so uh, it appears as of right now that we record that the convention is going on. But uh, one of the uh, most prominent Republicans in the Senate, John Cornyn, senator from Texas, uh, has pulled out now. And so uh Jim, what's your take on that, and what do you expect from the convention now over the next couple of days?
0: Yeah, I mean, I should point out that this was going to be the first NRA uh, annual meeting in three years. Uh, last one was in summer 2019. Obviously, they didn't have it in 2020, and it looked like they were going to go ahead in 20 summer 2021. Uh, actually, right, probably like late spring. Uh, they were just starting to roll out the vaccines, and I think about nine days before the scheduled date. They canceled it. Uh, I think they looked at the demographics of the attendees, and the fact that the virus was still going around, and recognized there was just too much chance of it turning into a super spreader event. Um, so there was already going to be drama heading into this over leadership. You listeners to this podcast know the National Rifle Association has had some really rough years, really tough uh, internal disputes, counter lawsuits, counter lawsuits, arguments about expenditures, uh, reports of self-dealing on contracts, things like that. This is not a completely unprecedented set of circumstances. Uh, Back in uh, 1999, after the Columbine massacre, uh, the National Rifle Association was scheduled to have its convention in Denver. Now, they scaled back some of the events that week. Um, They didn't do quite as much as they did. They got a lot of grief over it. I completely understand why a Senator John Cornyn or other lawmakers might hesitate to uh, speak to the NRA convention this week. I understand that you know you're gonna get a lot of grief for it. On the other hand, my understanding is that former President Trump still scheduled to go ahead and I believe for, uh, Senator Ted Cruz is still scheduled to go ahead and speak. I, I think if you pull out, there is almost a there's almost a signaling of you feel guilty about it. There's almost a signaling you feel like something's wrong, that you should not be going about your business as usual that, you, you know, that somehow it's wrong to say, I support the Second Amendment, I support uh, gun owners in America at a time like this. Now, there's some gun owners who say, hey, this is when we need your support the most. I think there's also an argument that like, well, if you do that, you're kind of the, the, the argument of so many gun control advocates and Democrats in office is that, well, when this, you know, supremely troubled kid chooses to shoot up in elementary school, it's your fault, Wayne LaPierre. It's your fault, NRA members. And that's not the case. It is the fault of the perpetrator. It is the fault of that person. Now, as we discussed recently, we can talk about what went into the mindset of that person. And were there points where this could have been prevented either legally through barring this person from purchasing a firearm, or were there things that could have been changed so this person would not end up in this murderous mindset, would not end up with this desire to lash out in anger at innocent people. Um, it'd be great if this sort of thing could be discussed. I don't know if that's uh, going to happen. Uh, I'll be honest, most of the speeches at the NRA convention, some years they are very focused on Second Amendment rights and gun rights and things like that. There are a lot of years someone will show up and kind of give their standard speech. And in the past, I've seen NRA audiences, you know they're never going to boo, they're never going to be critical, but they generally want to hear a lawmaker talk about what they want to do on Second Amendment and gun issues. Sometimes it branches out a bit into, uh, back during the fights over campaign finance reform, National Rifle Association said, look, we all, we're a gun owner. We're, we focus entirely on guns, but this issue is about our ability to stand up for you. So yes, we have opinions on that particular legislation. Uh, I know this is a decent amount of gun uh, of media bashing. Uh, gun owners feel like they are unfairly t- covered uh, and painted like maniacs and, and things like that. Um, so you'll see a decent amount of media bashing, I suspect. But you know, I think what is not recognized enough is that law-abiding gun owners have their hearts broken by these shootings as much as anybody else. There's nobody who likes this. There's nobody who wants this. And I don't think there are many people who'd say, oh, this is an acceptable trade-off, right? We all want to see it stop. That's one of the reasons why you know, many gun owners and Second Amendment advocates say, okay, well, this is why we need school resource officers. As we saw down in Florida, we need the school resource officers to react to the shooting instead of just standing there, as happened in that particular egregious case. Um, And or maybe it makes sense to, if you have a teacher who is, you know, properly trained on how to handle a firearm, you know, does it make sense to arm teachers, to have other people in there? The argument is by declaring schools to be gun-free school zones, well, the gunman knows there's not going to be a lot of people there who have the ability to shoot back. You You don't see mass shooters going up against police stations. Uh, thieves very rarely try to hold up the donut shop the cops hang out at, right? There's this kind of recognition that um, there are certain people who are willing to die, but certain people don't want to die. And if you want to discourage gun violence, the likelihood of someone intervening who has the ability to return fire is likely to make that difference there. So I I don't quite know what we're going to see. I don't know whether they're going to have an attitude of, we're just going to go on to business as usual and we're not going to acknowledge it, or whether you'll see some sort of full-throated defense of law-abiding gun owners and arguing, stop demonizing us, uh, and stop blaming us for the actions of a deeply troubled 18-year-old uh, down in this small Texas town. So we will see, Greg. Uh, I'm kind of curious about it, and uh, I suspect when I return early next week, I'll tell you all about it.
1: Yeah, we'll have plenty to talk about there. Uh, looks like it's going forward, but I have a feeling if they're smart, they'll at least uh, be pivoting a little bit on, on 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 what they're talking about. But we will see, and and we'll look forward to that report. Obviously, our our focal point right now is the heartbreak, um For the families, the parents, the siblings, and that entire community uh, in Southern Texas. Um, Our prayers are certainly with you and we pray uh, that God comforts you as only he can. Um, So Jim, you are off to the airport. Uh, We will certainly be here tomorrow and Friday for the three martini lunch. Uh, Jim and I have a special Memorial Day edition of the podcast ready to roll on Monday. And we'll be back with our usual fare together on Tuesday. Jim, so I'll see you then. See you Tuesday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karumbas of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. And uh, please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.
0: This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. Economies would collapse, or you say, in, in any event, the upside of fossil fuels, cheap, portable, abundant, far outweighs the negatives of climate change. Economies would collapse without them. And for emerging nations, affordable fossil fuel remains a, pre- a prerequisite for lifting billions of people out of poverty. And yet here's the President of the United States celebrating the, quote, transition away from affordable energy in the middle of an economic shock. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.